Welcome to the Future is Healthy podcast, where we have in-depth conversations with experts to help navigate wellness and empower all of us to make feasible changes to a healthier life and healthier world. In today's conversation, we get to talk to Professor Felice Jacka, who is director of the Food and Moon Center at Deakin University and an international leader in the transformative field of nutritional psychiatry research. She's also the founder and president of the International Society for Nutritional Psychiatric Research and immediate past president of the Australian Alliance for the Prevention of Mental Disorders. She has been responsible for the development of highly innovative field of research, establishing diet and nutrition as of importance to common mental disorders. These include the first studies to document a role for diet in adolescent depression, the first study to identify both maternal and early life nutrition as important predictors of children's mental health, and the first trial to show that dietary improvement can address depression. The results of the studies she has conducted have been highly influential. Professor Jacka's current research focuses closely on the links between diet, gut health, and mental and brain health. Professor Jacka has published over 160 peer-reviewed scientific papers, the majority in high-impact journals in the mental health field, including the American Journal of Psychiatry, BMC Medicine, and Lancet Psychiatry. She is listed in the top 10 most highly cited researchers in mood disorders in Australia. She has written a book for the public called Brain Changer, which we highly recommend. She is also passionate about prompting changes by policymakers to improve the global food environment. Today, Professor Jacka talks about how the brain and the body are connected, how important our food environment is, and how what people eat throughout their lives, no matter what age, affects their mental health. Why traditional diets, no matter what kind, can be best, that mother's diets during pregnancy affect the development of the fetus's brain, how eating healthy does not have to be expensive, what policies we could put into place that could help us be healthier and happier, Dr. Jacka then busts some myths about nutrition, like should we be eating red meat? And Dr. Jacka lays out simple tips for how to eat healthy and improve our moods. She also talks about how diets specifically affect women and what effect diet has on the microbiome and how a healthy microbiome could affect our mood. And we mention SAD throughout the interview. And when we speak about SAD, we're talking about the standard American diet. We really enjoyed this conversation, and we hope you do too. Now, on to the podcast. Hi, Felice. Welcome to the Future is Healthy podcast. Um, we've been really looking forward to talking to you, and thank you so much for taking time out of your crazy schedule uh, to sit down and answer some questions for us. It's a pleasure. Uh, so we'd love to start with your journey. Um, nutrition research is difficult to conduct. Um, what led you to pursue nutritional psychiatric research, and um, what kind of led you down the idea that nutrition could be used to improve mood? So I'd always had an interest in uh, food and, you know, understood it to be, I guess, the basis of, you know, our, our health and it's the foundation of all our body's processes. Um, and my first degree was in fine art, but when I was in my 30s, I went back to study psychology. And that was because of my own personal history of um, clinical depressive and anxiety disorders. These are the common mental disorders and they are exceedingly common. They account for a huge burden of disability. And in fact, mental disorders are the leading cause of global disability. Um, so when I was studying psychology, I realized that I wasn't 
particularly interested in being a psychologist, but I was very interested in, um, you know, the brain, the medical side of um, mental health, I guess. And then I kind of fell into research. And when I came into psychiatry research, I was really intrigued to note that there really wasn't much of an evidence base at all about nutrition and its role in mental health and psychiatry and in brain health. And that's really at odds with the rest of medicine, which of course has a very extensive evidence base about the importance of food in uh, physical health and chronic disease, cardiovascular disease, etc. So when I came into psychiatry research, which was quite accidental, and I did uh, it was a, you know the beginning of the 2000s, there was um, this newish field called psychoneuroimmunology, and it was looking at how the immune system interacted with um, mental health, and it was a really exciting new field because traditionally psychiatry, I think, has always considered the mind and the body to be separate, and the brain and the body to not be connected, and it's focused on the brain and the little molecules in the brain and the synapses, etc. And what this new field was saying is that um, actually, no, which kind of makes obvious sense, we are one very complex, highly integrated system. And at the same time, there were a lot of very interesting new data coming out of the US showing that there was this part of the brain called the hippocampus that actually put on new neurons throughout life and grew and shrunk. And um, so in other words, was very plastic. And it... um, environmental factors such as diet and exercise would affect its its size and its functioning. And so people were doing studies where they manipulated diet and showed an impact on the hippocampus and, and resulting impact on behaviour and, and memory and things like this in animals. Um, so there were a couple of strands of evidence that said, well, hang on, nutrition is actually involved here because, of course, nutrition is very important in immune function and there'd already been a lot of research to show that. And so I set out with my PhD to actually look at this link between the quality of people's diets and their clinical depressive and anxiety disorders, these common mental disorders. And this is, of course, within the context of the global food environment, which is um, really toxic now, such that um, poor diet and things related to poor diet are now the leading cause of illness and early death around the world. Um, And in fact, the industrialised food system costs the globe in terms of impact on health for humans and also impact on the environment, upwards of $12 trillion a year. And of course, big food, you know, this big industrialised food complex really has untrammeled access to populations and it is really having a negative, profoundly negative impact on diets all over the world as people move from traditional healthful diets to these Western highly processed, very unhealthful diets. And so this was something that I really felt quite passionately about. So anyway, I set out to actually look at this association. Um, I was involved in a big study that had um, enrolled uh, a very large cohort of women from right across the age range that were very representative of Australian women. And so I was able to look in great detail at their dietary behaviours, a whole host of other factors that could be involved, such as their education, income, body weight, other health behaviours, etc., and then their clinical uh, assessments of depressive and anxiety disorders. And, you know, I, I found the, the, the link, I saw the link that I had hypothesised that I would, and um, I submitted it for publication, and it was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry on the front cover. So it had a big impact, which now looking back is kind of funny because for a cross-sectional observational study to be on the cover is really not ever going to happen again, I don't think. But because it was new and novel and not, people hadn't really thought about it this way. 
it did garner a lot of attention. And on the basis of that, I was able to go on and work with a great many groups around the world where they'd collected data on diet and on mental health, but they hadn't actually put them together. You know, and it was just one of those things where no one had sort of thought about this connection. Um, and so very rapidly, I was able to develop the observational evidence base. Observational meaning, you know, you're not intervening to run an experiment. You're just observing what's there. You're collecting data and you're using statistics to put it together. And from that, and then others joined in, and soon we had this very large and robust evidence base for a relationship between the quality of people's diets and their risk for depressive disorders in particular across countries and across cultures. Very importantly, looked at it across age groups. So from right at the start of life, we see that children's diets and the mother's diets during pregnancy are linked to children's emotional health. Uh, through adolescence, and this is really key because half of all mental disorders start before the age of 14, and then right up to old age, where people often develop depression for the first time as their brain ages and their body ages. Wait, can you say that one more time? Did you say half of mental disorders start before the age of 14? That's right. Half of mental disorders start before the age of 14. Now, I um, am previous president of the Australian Alliance for the Prevention of Mental Disorders. And this is something that doesn't garner much interest or attention or money or research or anything. And that's because generally the costs of doing prevention actions are up front, whereas all the benefit is down the track. So politicians don't tend to value it very highly. But it's also the case that in mental health, we've understood that the risk factors are really uh, difficult to change. They're things like your genetics, you know, family history or poverty and disadvantage, life stress, early life trauma, these are things that are really hard to intervene and, and to modify. So identifying factors that you can modify is really important because then you have the opportunity to think about prevention. So in that, uh, through that lens, the fact that what mums eat during pregnancy, what children eat, what adolescents eat, right the way through life is related to the risk of mental disorders and in fact, people who have a healthier diet are about 30% less likely to develop depression. Uh, this is really important. And then, of course, um, I went on to do some work in humans looking at what had been previously shown in animals, that the quality of diet is related to the hippocampus in humans. And now that's since been uh, replicated a couple of times in much larger samples. And then in 2017, um, I led the SMILES trial, which was the first randomised control trial to actually test whether if you took people with clinical depression, in this case, moderate to severe clinical depression, and you helped them to improve their diet, did it have an impact on their mood? And we found that it had a large impact. We found that the, the degree of dietary change was tied very closely to the degree um, that to which their depression improved. We found that it was highly cost effective. We found that our diet was cheaper than the diet people were eating when they came into the study. And again, that has now been replicated in several more studies. And so now very much the focus is on, yes, doing more intervention research, but also understanding what works for whom, under what circumstances and how. And that's what the Food and Mood Centre is about. And I set that up about four years ago, and now that's grown very rapidly we have about 20 odd studies underway. A lot of them look at the gut microbiome as a key factor, uh, the immune system, as I mentioned, uh, brain plasticity, as I mentioned, all of these things to understand how these things work, but also to get this into policy and into clinical practice. And, and there we're having quite a lot of success just even quite recently. 
you've had an amazing journey. Uh, and I love how you said that it had that, that paper that was on the front page had a little bit of an impact, but almost every single podcast that I listen to that talks about either mental health or diet or a healthy lifestyle has, um, somehow mentioned you and your work, uh, whether it be the smiles trial or the initial one with the women's uh, mental health. And there's a lot that, uh, you said there that I would love to unpack, but I think that um, we can start with the SMILES trial. So it is an amazing first-of-the-kind ra- randomized control trial um, in which you said you wanted to understand the role of diet on mental health. Um, so what exactly did you find with um, the diet related to mental health? And uh, what were your results that you found? So it was pretty simple and straightforward. This is not about you know magic diets or magic superfoods or anything like that. Um, People came into the study and they were randomly assigned to receive either social support, which we know is helpful for people with depression, or dietary support from a dietitian. And all the dietitian did was meet with them seven times over a period of three months to help them gradually to make changes to their diet. So to focus on increasing the intake of plant foods such as um, vegetables and fruits, whole grain cereals, legumes, very importantly, nuts and seeds, uh, olive oil, and also fish. But really importantly, reducing the intake of, you know, cakes and donuts and sweets and chips and all of those other foods that we know are so uh, problematic. And people were able to make those changes. I think there's this assumption that somehow people are not uh, able to make those changes or that people with mental disorders in particular, because they experience a lot of fatigue, that they're not able to make those changes. But that's certainly not what we saw at all. People were able to make those changes. And as I mentioned, the degree to which they improved their diet correlated really closely with the degree to which they improved. And um, so the the diet wasn't fancy. It was a Mediterranean style diet, basically. And, you know, the thing is, when you look at the literature from right around the world, traditional diets of all types are associated with better mental health, even when you take into account a whole host of potentially explanatory factors. So whether it's a traditional Norwegian diet, a traditional Japanese or Chinese or Australian or what have you, because it's, you know, traditional diets were full of whole foods, foods that are not super processed, and it's low in those processed foods. And uh, really nice traditional diets have fermented foods as well, which we also think is probably a really good thing. Uh, So it doesn't have to be really prescriptive at all. It's just about improving the intake or increasing the intake of um, a whole range and diverse range of plant foods and healthful proteins and fats and reducing the junk. Okay, so in terms of what's hurting us more, is it the lack of the good food or is it really the bad food and the preservatives and all of that? It's a really good question and we don't know the answer to that because the trials haven't been done to actually, you know, tease that apart. And if you think about it, it's very, very difficult because it's not like you can randomly assign people to eat junk food or (laughs) healthy diet. There's a whole host of methodological issues with nutrition research. But if we look at the observational literature, what we see really consistently is that both things are problematic and they're quite independent of each other. So they're not just the opposite of each other because what you'll have is, for example, lots of young people have lots of good food at home. They may be having their vegetables and their, you know, unprocessed, you know, proteins and meats or what have you. But then they're going and they're having before, during, after school, you know, a whole host of junk foods and processed foods and sweet foods. And that's problematic. 
at the same time, you'll often get people, particularly older people, who have a really narrow range of diets. They're not out eating McDonald's and what have you, but they also are not having the vegetables, the fruits, the legumes, the nuts and seeds, all the things that we know are so important to support good gut health, good mental and brain health. Um, they're eating a lot of white foods. So both, too much of the bad stuff is not good and too, not enough of the good stuff is not good and they're sort of separate, which is interesting. Interesting. Um, so when you talk about, or one of the things that really interested me that you said was that kids, most mental illnesses start when they're kids and their diet early on. Um, there's a common misconception amongst kids that, and amongst humans in general, that you can kind of eat bad and then when you get into your 30s, 40s, now's the time to make up for it, radically change your diet and fix your life. That's clearly not the case. Um, so for us with Medicine Explained, it's our big goal to kind of like intervene as young as we can and get people talking about health. Um, what would you say is the biggest thing that we could do now to protect these kids early on? I think there's a few things there. One is, of course, that there's, it's really important for parents to understand that just because their kids are in the healthy weight range doesn't mean that these foods aren't doing damage. And I think that's a really common misconception that the only sequelae of poor diet is obesity, and that's the only thing we need to worry about. That's absolutely not the case. And although we lack a lot of data from humans, and this is because, you know, again, it's really difficult and ethically problematic to put people onto a junk food diet and watch what it does, the data that we do have from those studies shows very quickly an impact on cognition, people's ability to learn and remember. And we think that this is related to the hippocampus. And when we look at the animal studies, again, we see that you will see uh, impacts on animals' cognition, their memory, their behaviour, way before their body weight changes. Also being really mindful that when people are young, their reward systems in the brain seem to be like super activated. That's a really lay term. But, um, you know, this is one of the reasons I think that young, you know, adolescents, they're driven to, to, you know, drinking and drug taking and smoking and, you know, sex and driving fast and all these things that interact with the reward systems of the brain. And junk foods are deliberately designed to do the same thing. So they're really uh, motivated to consume these foods. And we know from really well conducted clinical trials that everything else being equal, energy, palatability, etc. If you give people these ultra processed foods compared to non processed foods, they will eat far more of the ultra processed foods. And that's because probably they interact with the reward systems of the brain. So the idea that you can just, you know, when you're young, just eat this stuff and then later on, you know, clean up your act, it, it's not uh, the case. And what we're particularly focused on now is the very early life microbiome because the microbiome, the gut bacteria in infants in the first days, weeks, months of life, we know that it plays a very important role in training the immune system but it also looks like it plays an important role in driving brain development or certainly some aspects of brain development. And new research that's coming out is showing that mother's diets during pregnancy uh, influence the way brains are developing in utero, uh, at least partly via the gut and by the metabolites that the gut bacteria produce as the infant is growing in utero. So we have to get parents' diets right. Now, just to throw something else in there, you know, in the US, 60% of children alive today will be clinically obese by the time they're 35. Now, that's a key age for their childbearing years. And we know that the health of the parents has huge bearing on the health of the kids. 
Just as one example, the huge MOBA study in Norway had data from more than 100,000 parents and their children, and they showed a direct dose-response relationship between the level of overweight and obesity of the fathers and the children's risk of autism spectrum disorder. And we already have a meta-analysis showing that mothers' diets during pregnancy are related to children's emotional cognitive health and uh, many other data to show that mothers' metabolic health is related to a whole host of health outcomes in, in infants. So the fact that this morbid and clinical obesity is going to be so omnipresent in um, young people in the next generation has huge implications for their offspring's health. And not only that, um, the advertisers also target young people with the, um, the super sugary cereals with the cartoon characters on the front of um, the boxes and all of that too. So um, like you were saying before we started uh, recording, you are really into um, food policy work specifically. And so making big changes where we can't allow these advertisers to get into um, the minds of the children so young, I think is really important too. Mm. At this point, big food has untrammeled access to populations across the globe. It has almost no restrictions, whether it's um, heavily marketed, it's super cheap, it's ubiquitous, you can't walk out the street, put gas in your car, whatever, without being um, prompted to consume these foods that are, you know, kind of like crack cocaine for, for your mouth and your brain. Um, and there's no restrictions on them. And so we, as the global population, are paying the price, $12 trillion a year, for our health and the health of the environment. And these big companies are reaping the huge, huge profits that come with that. But because they're so big and powerful, they have seemingly untrammeled power as well. You know, there's no restrictions. What do you think the answer is for that? What can we do as um, policymakers, but then also for our listeners who just are part of the general public, what can we each do on an individual level, day-to-day base, week-to-week, month-to-month? Are there certain policies we can support? Are there certain foods that we can buy that uh, supports these changes with our pocket money? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, uh, public health bodies, um, such as, for example, in Australia, the Obesity Policy Coalition, they make rafts of policy recommendations around restricting marketing, around taxation of things such as sugar-sweetened beverages, around education, around tracking, all of these types of things. But governments generally don't take them on. And the food industry is extremely good at putting out this idea of the nanny state. You know, now no one thinks the nanny state when they go and put their seatbelt on in the car. It's obvious to individuals that, you know, it makes good sense for everybody to wear a seatbelt. Now, the same should be true of food, but the uh, big food has been very, very good at putting out this idea of, oh, you don't want the government telling you what to eat. But we know that the biggest driver of food behaviour is the food environment. And... People on the right, politicians on the right, love to make it about individual responsibility. Oh, well, you're sick. That's your fault because you ate the bad diet and you did the bad things. But without support to change that food environment, given that these foods are designed to interact with all the reward systems of the brain so that you keep on wanting to eat them and buy them, you're not going to get people changing and improving their diet. But at an individual level, of course, it's really important right from the start of life, as you mentioned, that children are exposed to good food and good um, and new flavours and diverse tastes right from the start of life. 
you don't normalize these highly and ultra processed food products you know you don't have them in the house they're not normal they're actually aberrations in the house you have you know healthful food and we've shown it does not need to be expensive i always talk about like a peasant type diet you know lots of beans tin beans dried beans tin fish you can use frozen veggies whatever does not have to be expensive doesn't have to be difficult but you get kids exposed to those flavors really early on. It takes on average six goes for kids to be um, get used to a new flavor, especially things like vegetables that are perceived as more bitter uh, to children. And you just normalize healthy eating. You get them cooking from an early age. You get yourself up to date with a bit of cooking from YouTube if you're not sure what to do. Um, and you, you know, you vote for the um, the lawmakers, the policy makers that want to provide a healthy food environment. So, if you could implement one policy tomorrow, um, what would that one policy be? I would put a blanket ban on marketing of these unhealthful food products. <laughs> that would be really the, a great first step. How is it that the, the Olympics has sponsors? that make these unhealthful food products. I mean, that's not an accident. How is it that all sporting codes have this? How is it that um, you you can't go anywhere without being hit by these ad- advertisements? And, you know, the idea that industry will self-regulate is just a joke. We know that they don't. Yeah, you see more for more advertisements for Coca-Cola and Powerade and sugary drinks while watching the Olympics than you do uh, watching anything. Um, but yet you never see the athletes actually drinking anything besides water. Um, so is there any food or beverage that you would absolutely put a ban on if you could pick one thing? Oh, I never want to pick just one thing. You know, food is so complex. It's never that simple. Um, sugar sweetened beverages, we know are the the greatest source of sugar in the diet in most countries. So, uh, you know, sugar sweetened beverages like, like Coke, like, you know, any of those, uh, would be the first, the, the low hanging fruit because they are just such a major source of sugar added sugars in the diet. Um, So that would be probably the first. And this is why many countries are now starting to talk about a bit of a tax on these sugar-sweetened beverages. And those taxes, where they exist, they are working to reduce the consumption of these things. But, you know, if you were thinking about it from a comparison point of view, in Australia, cigarettes have a 400% tax on them to make them super expensive. Soft drinks have a 10% tax on them in the countries or the jurisdictions that have put a tax on. You know, it's like little dinsy-winsy steps. And, it, you know, it's one of those things where you just look at it and go, what? This is just crazy. How is it that humans are so good at just making the worst decisions for themselves? <laughs> I think that it's really important, too, to highlight something that you were saying a little bit earlier that it only takes six times for a kid to be introduced to a vegetable to gain a taste for it. So I think that that's a lower number than I had expected. And also that diet, a healthy diet can be cheap. There's been so much misconception that eating healthy is for boutique um, co-ops or only shopping at Whole Foods, but it can be so accessible for everyone. Yeah. And I I think, though, in the States, you have a particular situation that is almost unique. I mean, there's other countries that are getting there, but still, it's nothing like the US. I mean, the US has the reputation as just the most disastrous diet in the world by a country mile. And the thing is, it's, it's been so abnormal for so many generations now that people actually don't see it. I remember going to a workshop a couple of years ago, 
in you know uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and lots and lots of very uh, senior, very very clever researchers, and everybody sitting with their packets of things on their desk, packets of you know, and some of them will say they're you know they're healthier, it has fiber or some rubbish added to it, and you know they're cans of things. It's still highly processed. It doesn't matter if it has a few vitamins stuck in it or a bit of you know, some supplemental fibre or polyphenols or whatever it is, that is not food. It's still highly processed. It's still really problematic. Um, people have forgotten what normal food looks like <laughs> because everywhere they go, everything is just broken apart, reformulated, put back together, marketed so that they can add that profit margin to it. The marketing has been very successful here in the United States. <laughs> That's for sure. We're even, even in the healthcare system and at the hospitals, the food that they serve the patients that are coming out of recovery is um, just highly processed sugar or what some of the healthcare providers eat, which I don't, obviously I don't blame them. Everyone's moving very quickly, has a lot to do, but many of the times the only food that they can access is this highly processed um, food that they have, but they're eating it themselves. And then of course, you're not going to be able to uh, be an example exactly for your patients that you have. So it's just, it's ingrained deeply. I mean, in, in Australia, like I guess all around the world, we have um, a huge exposure to American television, American movies, things like that. And I, I find it really fascinating to watch and to just clock what people eat in them and what's normal food. Now, going right back to happy days and, you know, depicting the 1950s, what was normal? Shakes, ice creams, chips, burgers, pizza. This is American food for decades and decades and decades. You know that this is normal food somehow and it's just so aberrant and it's so hard to actually get proper just normal food without throwing your wallet out the window in the US and that it's just really a disaster. How you wind that back I'm not sure but you know nutrition education for doctors in medical schools is critical. Now there are great strides being made in the UK. You're probably aware of NutriTank and nutrition um, and medical education over there where you know there's a, a lot of changes that are happening because we know of course that something like three quarters of junior physicians in the UK and the US feel completely unqualified to give nutrition advice to their patients despite the fact that diet is poor diets the leading cause of illness and early death and so there's a lot of work that's going into changing that for us at the food and mood center the idea that uh, well the knowledge that um, food is related to mental and brain health has enormous potential for leverage because when you talk about food or when public health talks about food it has traditionally focused on obesity now obesity is an enormously problematic thing to focus on because once people are overweight or obese very, very few of them can take off weight and keep it off for a whole range of very good reasons related to biology. Um, and it's also very stigmatizing. So what people get is this message, oh, if you eat badly, you'll become obese. Well, I'm already obese, so I might as well just give up and keep eating the fries. Or they say you must eat well because you don't want to have a heart attack one day or you don't want to catch, you know, you don't want to get cancer. But they're all things that are off in the future. That's not how humans work. But if you say to humans, your brain and your ability to learn and remember and your mood and how you feel is going to be affected in really short time span depending on what you put in your mouth that cuts through that leverages behavior change and so we set up a free online course in nutritional psychiatry 12 months ago we've run it three times and to date it's 
enrolled more than 57,000 people from more than 160 countries around the globe. This is just saying what an unmet need there is. And now this is just a really basic course. We're working with peak bodies in Australia and we're gonna do a global survey to, to look at what psychiatrists need. And then we'll do proper accredited training for psychiatrists. We'll do the same thing for GPs. We'll do the same thing for dietitians, so that these healthcare practitioners can actually access evidence-based information. Because the other big issue is that there are a whole stack of psychiatrists and medical doctors promoting absolute bollocks in relation to diet and dietary strategies and no evidence, no understanding of the evidence and potentially really dangerous and problematic recommendations that don't have an evidence base. And that is really a, an issue. Uh, what are some of those myths surrounding nutrition that are dangerous that are being spread? Unfortunately, there's a lot of people promoting the idea of these ketogenic and carnivore diets. Now, uh, they're based the, these ideas on some very, very tiny and not very compelling uh, animal studies. What we know, for example, about the ketogenic diet is that it's um, an anti-gut health diet. It's pretty much the opposite of what we know is good for gut health. So gut bacteria, they require lots of fiber from plant foods, polyphenols from plant foods. These are whole grain cereals, legumes, lots of different types of plants and they really don't like high fat diets. So of course the ketogenic diet is kind of the opposite of that. Having said that, we know that the ketogenic diet is useful in epilepsy and there's some indications that it may be useful in, in Alzheimer's disease. So it may have particular medical applications to severe disease states. And in fact, we're going to be piloting, well, we're actually started piloting a healthy version of a ketogenic diet in people with psychosis to actually have a look at the impact on uh, symptoms because if there is anything there we want to be able to test it and do it properly and do it with a proper randomized controlled trial where we're not just cherry picking bits of evidence that's interesting to us and you know extrapolating madly from animal studies we're actually looking at this uh, seriously and looking at safety considerations because there are a lot of reports of uh, problematic outcomes from these and don't even get me started on this crazy idea of the carnivore diet I just can't <laughs> even <laughs> and to me you know medical practitioners it's the you know they have an imperative to practice evidence-based medicine you know promoting these sorts of diets that is not evidence-based medicine so uh, running training for people and this is why I did the book and this is why we've got the food murder center website is so that people can access the actual evidence base yeah it's it's really hard to navigate all of the information that we're being fed whether it be social media um through any social media channel and then there are a lot of people who like you were saying some physicians are spreading information that isn't necessarily evidence-based but they're all they are cherry picking certain publications that they can have as primary research so it does look credible how would you advise us and our listeners of how to navigate those studies and navigate the information that we are being fed? It's almost impossible because literally you kind of need to be a researcher to understand how research works and what you pay attention to and what you don't. But if you really want to cut through and the misinformation and get to where the evidence is and where it isn't, here's a good one to follow. But it is very difficult for the general population. I mean, the point is that Medical doctors can't do it. And that's why we have these medical doctors promoting all this misinformation. 
And I think the key thing is that the SAD is so terribly toxic and has resulted in such a huge burden of illness and overweight and obesity and all of those things that almost any dietary change is going to be an improvement on that. So people go, well, I went low carb and look, I lost weight and this happened and that happened. Well, yes, maybe you lost weight because you removed donuts and cakes and sweets and fried foods and things that come in packets and soft drinks out of your diet. So, um, you know, this is another, I guess, consequence of, of the SAD is that there's this misinformation because people are so obsessed with wanting to change their body weight and this illness that comes from the SAD. This is part of the reason why we started this podcast too, because we want to invite experts like you to be able to share your massive amount of knowledge and information on the subject and make it um, easy to understand, be, be applicable to people's lives. Um, that and we definitely need uh, food policy changes. <laughs> if people are on Twitter, I mean, even you, you ask about a resource, how do you sift the, the you know, the cherry-picked rubbish from the, the um, you know, the good evidence base? There's Kevin Hall who does really amazing stuff uh, through the NIH. And this is proper randomised control trials where they basically lock people up and feed them. <laughs> um and he's done some amazing stuff, particularly around the ultra-processed food products. There's Kevin Clatch. He's another fantastic uh, diet researcher. Kevin Whelan. You're not kidding, kidding about these companies. No, I was thinking <laughs> I should just change my name. <laughs> Kevin Whelan at King's College in London. He's leading uh, researcher in nutrition and the gut and the impact on the gut. Uh, Kevin Davey is another one. So there's all these guys called Kevin who are all very good researchers and very good nutrition researchers. So if you want good evidence-based information, follow the diet Kevins <laughs> on Twitter. So we always like to give our listeners some actionable advice. And so if you could just stress to some of our listeners um, how quickly your mood could change or you know, for the better or for the worse, depending on what you're eating. That's a really great question and we don't know the answer to it yet because there's been too few studies done. But we do know that the most recent randomised control trial was done in college students and it showed that within three weeks, young people who did make dietary changes and they confirmed this by doing a spectrophotometer that measures levels of carotenoids in the blood, they experienced quite a notable improvement in mood within three weeks. If we look at the gut focus research, and I always love this particular study because they looked at... Um, traditional South Africans living a traditional diet uh, and traditional lifestyle versus um, African Americans having a sad, you know, this horrible um, uh, Western American diet. And they measured their gut microbiome. And as they expected, and as they've seen in many other studies, the ones with the traditional diet and the traditional lifestyle had far more a diversity of the gut, which is what you want to see. And uh, whereas the African Americans had, you know, pretty sad looking gut and very far more, um, far higher levels of these inflammatory markers that we know are indicative of the risk for bowel cancer. And then what they did was they swapped their diets for two weeks. So the poor South Africans got a Western diet, an American diet, and the, the um, African-Americans got this more traditional diet. So they increased all their plant fibers and reduced their fat and animal protein, whereas the opposite happened. And within two weeks, you could see this really global shift not just in the microbiome composition, but in those inflammatory markers that are indicative of risk for, breast, uh, for colon cancer. 
So you can change your gut pretty quickly, but then of course you need to maintain that. And don't just think you can go and have your probiotics and you know that'll fix everything or your supplements. That, that is just not how it works. Your bacteria needs, um, you're talking about actionable recommendations. It's actually really simple. You increase the amount of plant foods, and here we're talking vegetables, fruits, whole grain cereals, nuts and seeds and legumes very importantly so that's your chickpeas lentils beans etc and you increase the diversity of your food so don't just have the one type of oats every day you know one oats every day mix it up have oats have buckwheat have quinoa have uh, barley have brown rice whatever mix it up same with all your vegetables fruits everything else the more diverse your diet the more diverse your microbiome Avoid, like the plague, the highly and ultra-processed food products, things that come in packets, things that have more than three ingredients. And I would also suggest get some fermented foods into your diet. So that could be sauerkraut, kimchi, um, kombucha, kefir, you know, there's a whole host of different um, fermented foods. That's also a really great recommendation just because all of, we've touched on the keto diet or the carnivore diet. It's so restricting. And if you just go back to basics and eating whole foods, whole plant-based foods, um, also meat, because I think uh, what I found really interesting in your book that I read was that um, there was a group of women that you studied that uh, was eating what looked like a healthy diet but didn't have red meat in it, and they actually had higher levels of depression. Um, do you mind expanding on that? That was fascinating. Yeah, it was really fascinating because it went against what I expected. Um, and it was the same big sample of women in which I did my main PhD study looking at diet quality and these common mental disorders. But um, because it wasn't what I expected to find, I went further and looked at this in detail and saw... So first of all, I looked at these dietary patterns and use a statistical process to sort of look at the dietary patterns of people. And as you said, the women who were having what we called a modern diet, which was kind of tofu and salads and beans and fish, look like a really, really healthy diet, but they had a very slightly, well, they certainly didn't have the decreased risk of these disorders or odds of these disorders that the women eating a more traditional uh, traditional diet did, traditional Anglo-Saxon diet, which was lots of veggies, whole grain cereals, uh, fish, but also um, red meat. And here we're talking beef and lamb. So it's sort of like Australian, Anglo-Australians, traditional British in a way. And um, so we went on and looked at this in detail. And what I did was I looked at our national dietary guidelines for red meat. So this is not processed meat. Uh, this is beef and lamb. And I categorized the women into those who ate less than the recommended intake, the recommended intake, or more than the recommended intake. Now, I took out the 20 or so vegetarians so that that didn't muddy the water because we already know that vegetarianism is associated with poor mental health, but we don't know which direction that relationship is. Um, and then what I did is I took into account overall diet quality because, of course, you could be eating lots and lots of red meat and accompanying that with lots and lots of chips and burgers and unhealthy foods, or you could be eating lots of red meat but also lots of veggies and legumes and all the other things, taking that into account. And what we saw was this u-shaped relationship that was very clear so that women who were getting less than the recommended intake which was say three to four just tiny palm-sized portions of red meat a week or more than that were twice as likely to have a clinical depressive disorder an anxiety disorder and this is like all the different anxiety disorders and we even saw the same pattern with bipolar disorder 
So it was really fascinating, not what we expected, uh, but we can't ascribe causality to that because without a, an intervention, you can't test whether that's causal. But you know, you can't randomly assign people to be vegetarian or not vegetarian and then follow them up for years and years and years to see who gets depressed. That's not going to work. So you have to sort of fall back on this. So what you found is people who are eating way too little or way too much red wheat, red meat uh, fell into the categories of having more depression or more anxiety. But the sweet spot was right in the middle. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, you know, this goes along with everything we know about food. You know, it's not extremes. It's it's moderation. It's, you know, sticking to whole foods. So, again, good quality. In Australia, beef and lamb is largely grass-fed. So unlike in the US, it's it's largely grass-fed, particularly lamb and sheep. Um, and small amounts, and you know, these are tiny. So this is like meat as a condiment, not meat as the main course with a little bit of salad or veggies on the side. This is veggies and, and legumes and whole grain cereals with a little bit of meat. So that's how you do it. You know, like a quarter of your plate, you look at your plate, you divide it up into quarters and it should be, a, you know, kind of a quarter of each. So three quarters plant foods and, and one quarter, a little bit of animal protein, if you choose to. I mean, I'm vegetarian for ethical and environmental reasons, but I also, I'm not in um, the age range for menstruation. And I think for young women, it can be really problematic when they're not having any red meat or not paying attention to, you know, their iron, zinc, B group vitamin status. Uh, that's something I've actually been very focused and passionate about um, in the last uh, few months is diet in menstruating women and how um, we really need to get our hormones in balance. And there's a lot of misinformation about diet, like we've said, either the carnivore diet or the veganism depends, like the very extremes and just throwing people's um, infertility off. Um, and so I think it's really important that uh, we spread the right information and get um, women back on diets that allow for, I mean, the greatest mental and physical health. I mean, as a scientist, I'm not a great fan of the anecdote, as you might imagine, but the number of people that I hear from, whether they're physicians or uh, young women, who note that they, when they took red meat out of their diet, over many months, they became more and more and more psychiatrically unwell, with quite severe, in many cases, major depression, that was reversed when they reintroduced red meat into their diet makes me think that there, there may well be a causal element to it. But without randomised control trials, we can't know for sure. And I just don't see them happening in a hurry. I also wanted to touch a little bit about um, the Food and Mood Center's research on the gut health. Um, I was just wondering if you could describe a little bit what you're looking for in the gut feeling study. Okay, so that's not actually our study. We're involved in it. It's being led by um, uh, colleagues of ours at University of Melbourne and I'm co-supervising one of the students who's been leading that. Uh, that's an intervention to, to look at whether intervening with either um, prebiotic or probiotic supplements or dietary interventions or placebo has an impact on mood. And our component of it is that we're looking at the gut microbiome samples. But we're doing more than 20 different studies at the centre and at least 15 of those involve the gut microbiome. So we're going to have a lot of data coming out in the next year or two uh, around the gut microbiome. Because when we look at um, you know, diet and mental and brain health, as I mentioned, brain plasticity is involved, the immune system, we think metabolic systems, metabolites, all of these, the stress response system all involved in the pathogenesis of mental disorders. Now, each of these are... Um, 
influenced quite strongly by the gut microbiota. And that's something we've only started to understand quite recently. And the lovely thing about the gut is it's very um, concrete. People get it. It's very quick. You can change your gut microbiota very quickly. Uh, you can see the impact on your gut by, you know, when you go to the toilet, you know. So, and this is why I wrote There's a Zoo in My Poo, because it's a really good way to make, you know, the, the whole area of science, medical research, gut microbiota research is hugely complex. It involves really complicated biostatistics and informatics and, and really complex methodologies for measuring genes and blah, blah, blah. But actually what your gut needs to thrive is very simple. You know, we co-evolved we co with these microbiota. They can't live without us. We can't live without them. A whole host of evidence suggests that they're really important in our health. I think one of the most interesting things is while there's a lot of evidence from animal studies around the importance of the gut and all of these different things that the microbiota do to influence mental and brain health, coming from animal studies, there are a few humans data so far we're aiming to address that and, and look at this in humans but in cancer research we're seeing these quite remarkable uh, findings and they're coming from humans they're not coming from animals they're coming from large human cohorts suggesting that the health of people's guts is very closely linked to whether or not they respond to treatment in cancer in a range of cancers particularly in immunotherapy, where only 20 to 40% of people respond. And it seems that people's microbial diversity is a very strong predictor of whether or not they respond to treatment, whereas taking antibiotics can have a really negative impact on people's survival rates. So um, there are actually two randomized control trials going on at the moment where they're doing fecal microbial transplants from people who have responded to immunotherapy into people who haven't responded to immunotherapy which is fascinating. There's another trial underway in women who've had breast cancer. Now I had breast cancer 12 months ago. I've had a lot of treatment this year. I'm gonna be fine, but it's been really, really awful. And I don't want it coming back again. And in this study, what they're doing is they're just randomly assigning women to have either half a can of navy beans a day just added to their diet or not. That is how simple the intervention is. Because I think just that increase in fiber might be enough to tip the balance between somebody, you know, recovering and going on to being well and those not. So, you know, even if you don't care about your mental and brain health, for God's sake, nobody wants cancer. <laughs> so many people are affected by it. Your gut is absolutely central, it seems, to uh, your, you know, cancer survival. Wow, I'm, I'm really sorry that you had to go through that this year. It's very, very common. You know, this is the thing for women. It, it's, it, it's hugely common. But knowing that 70% of your immune system lies in your gut and that what you need to make sure that that's working well is actually quite straightforward. And I was doing all the wrong things. I always ate well, but I was super stressed. I was traveling all the time. I was drinking too much wine. I was doing all those things. I was overweight. All of those things are risk factors. Having said that, I know many, many women who have been super, super healthy and very slim and everything else, and they still get breast cancer. It's unfortunately, it's like a plague. But I do think if you want the best chance of surviving it and coming out the other side, uh, focusing on your gut and exercise, they're the two key things. That's really interesting. And also, um, I've been hearing a lot recently too about... Um, and like we've talked about in this conversation too, variety is, is key. The variety of foods that Diversity. you eat. Yeah, eat the rainbow. <laughs> you know, go, go to the store and get a whole 
stack of packets of dried you know I've got lentils of all different colors I've got beans in tins of all different colors you know um, you know chickpeas I eat them every every day I would have legumes of some sort similarly nuts nuts are amazing they're prebiotic they've got the healthy fats they've got a whole host of things in them so walnuts and almonds and cashews and macadamias and all these types of nuts you know if you have those in the afternoon they seem to be associated with so many important health benefits and such a great way to keep your weight under control because they really fill you are pistachios good too <laughs> probably for the listener right now that's wondering and just learning about the microbiome and their gut and how important it is um, how can they get their composition tested or how can they just generally know if they have a good gut microbiome right now or a bad gut microbiome there's not a lot of value thus far in testing because nobody really knows yet what they're looking for you know it's just way too complex uh, I think the best way of knowing whether your gut is in good shape is um, the Bristol stool chart um, you know what what does your poo look like it should be hopefully you're heading for a number four number four is like a nice smooth sausage if you're really constipated or if you've got very, very loose bowels, then that's not great, obviously. If you've got a grumbly tummy and IBS, this is incredibly common because people's guts are in such poor shape. And it means that the foods, the FODMAP foods, which are actually the gut foods, the gut bacteria foods, people react to them because they don't have the gut microbiota that they need to be able to break down the, the plant fibers and the, and the FODMAPs. So uh, those sorts of things tell you about your gut. Yeah, there's so much to know about the microbiome. I'd, I'd like to think about it um, every, every time I feed myself, I just think like, oh, is this good for all the little bacteria inside me or is it bad? And it's kind of like a nice way to, to make it simple. And with our book, you know, There's a Zoo in My Poo, we released that uh, just a couple of months ago and it's just sold out so quickly because it's designed to give kids the information and the tools that they need to make healthy food choices for themselves, but also to reach their parents and their kids. And we hear so many stories now from people going, oh, you know, like my three-year-old says, look, mum, I'm eating a banana. The buds in my bum are going to love this. <laughs> so that idea is something that kids really get. So lastly, we ask everybody on our show to finish the following sentence. The future is blank. Fermented. <laughs> future is fermented I you know alliteration always works <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect well thank you so much uh, Felice this was amazing and a great conversation similarly to the the mission of your book trying to make everything simple um, we have made our TikTok and our podcast to be able to simplify and really distill all of this amazing information that you've been doing throughout the years and your team has been doing. So we really appreciate all the work um, and it's making the world a, a healthier place. That's what we hope. And, you know, we really only just got started in, in Australia. We're starting to see changes to policy, to clinical guidelines, and we've got a whole host of uh, research projects in the works that will hopefully uh, set the scene for lifestyle medicine, which is not integrative, it's not complementary, it's not alternative. Lifestyle medicine is just basic healthful diet, exercise, smoking cessation, sleep, stress reduction. Those things is the foundation of treatment for physical and mental health. And then if you need other treatments on top of that, that's fine, but you get that foundation right first. 
and that involves policy, it involves training of physicians and young doctors like yourselves, uh, and it, it involves a whole change of focus in the way we think about mental health and recognition that the brain and the body are just one and the same. They're not separate. They're all uh, intricately linked. And we've got to treat the whole person and not just bits of their brain. So the future over the next 10 years will involve a whole lot more work to get this as, a, you know, just the foundation of how we think about health. Going back to basics, what we were meant to do, not being vegetarian, not being a carnivore, omnivore, variety, sleeping, exercise. It's perfect. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Future is Healthy podcast. If you loved what you heard, subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. And if you think someone you know can benefit from any of the info we talked about, share this with friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. We don't rely on paid ads so that you can trust we have no conflict of interest in any of the information we provide or talk about in this podcast. If you support what we're doing, you can help us to continue putting out content by clicking the link to support the Future is Healthy podcast. This podcast is for general education purposes only. It is not a substitute for treatment, diagnoses, or professional medical advice. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or other qualified professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information from this podcast and any of the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. If you are seeking advice for any medical condition, it is important to seek the assistance from a qualified, trained, and licensed medical practitioner.